what you've just listened to is probably the most famous donuts in the world. Colin McRae, Derek Ringer just going over the finish ramp at Chester Racecourse, securing their 1995 World Rally Championship. We started episode one of this two-part special with Mark James talking about his coverage of the championship and how it affected his career. And I thought it'd be quite good to reach out to the voices that you know today from the World Rally Championship and also from World Rally Cross. Um, so I thought I'd get Julian Porter and I thought I'd get Andrew Coley. First up, Julian Porter on what it meant for his career. This is Absolute Rally, the season of 95. <laughs> For me, the 1995 season was a bit of a strange one, if I'm honest, because uh, I'd just come off the back of a, a very successful 94 season as a competitor uh, in BTRDA and the Formula in the national BTRDA and the little front wheel driver Nova that we had. Also, we did the national championship in that Nova, and we won F2 outright uh, in the national championship, beating a lot of two-wheel drive, two-liter cars, as well as like the 1600s, and and then BTRDA. We finished second overall in the championship again, won A6 class. And it was kind of like 95 was, in theory, my big step up to the to the British Rally Championship, and. Got a drive with uh, with Honda. Someone helped us get a drive. Ask with Autosport, and I was like, "Here we go, we're on our way." And it was kind of like the World Championship didn't really. It did exist, but it didn't because I was trying to get the momentum going. And it was like, "Here we go, right? This is what I'm going to do." And cut a, a, a long and kind of like difficult story short, it, it just didn't work. I'd come out of a Group A Nova, which pulled from a couple of thousand revs all the way up to seven and things like that, to this Honda Civic that Mark Higgins and Cliffy Simmons had worked wonders in. Uh, but the thing just didn't start working till about 7,000 revs. And I just couldn't drive it. Half a day tested Bill Gwynn's beforehand. Uh, an accident on the first round in the, in the Vauxhall Sport where I rolled it. Got a bit of a history of that. I've done that twice now. Uh, then uh, a Pirelli rally. I, I went off again. I, I think I actually finished dead last, uh, having spent 18 minutes or something in a ditch. And it was just kind of like, I, I can't compete with this car. And it was something that we ended uh, and basically had nothing to do. So the World Rally Championship became my focus of, uh, of watching it. But 1995 wasn't like uh, 2020 where you just pick up your mobile phone and look at it. And it was a situation of working for the family business and running back up every couple of hours to check CFAX, page 360, I think it was, 360, and then it, that was the sport, and then you picked your motorsport, and kind of running back into the house, seeing what was going on, seeing who was winning and, and who wasn't winning, and finding out that those bits of information, and an hour or two afterwards, and and then, well, as for TV footage, that was a week later, um, so it was kind of all a bit strange, and a bit kind of like bizarre that you were always watching it, but but from behind, 95 was obviously Colin McRae's uh, championship winning year. I've got a little thing I've got to tell you. I wasn't a massive, massive Colin McRae fan. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Our family business was a Mitsubishi dealership. So I, we supported Mitsubishi. Uh, and the Evo 2s initially, then the Evo 3s that, uh, that, the, that the team had. And Kenneth Erickson, Tommy Mackinan those kind of things so whenever i was searching uh, on cfax and for information i was genuinely always looking to see how the mitsubishis were doing and yeah 
dare I say it, hoping that they were going to beat uh, Colin McRae and people like that. So it was kind of a, it was a pure and simply a, a, a loyalty thing to, that was the brand that we were selling as a car dealership and uh, kind of like supporting. Uh, and you, you kind of had met some of the people around the rally team because of our involvement in motorsport. My dad had had a Mitsubishi rally car. So, Subaru was a massive rival and to be fair it wouldn't have mattered who was driving that car even though Carlos Sainz is probably one of my favourite drivers in the world um, it wouldn't matter who was driving the Subaru or the Toyota or whatever the Fords it was there against Mitsubishi which is our brand so uh, and again whoever drove a Mitsubishi was like one of our superheroes so it's kind of a strange thing that uh, you were kind of watching it and, and, and seeing what was going on but I was watching it from a, a, a Mitsubishi side rather than uh, everyone else's side. And if we're honest, Mitsubishi had a great start, you know, winning in Sweden and things like that. So this was brilliant. And then the Subaru steamroller just started to kind of like get a bit of momentum with Carlos. Yes, then he got injured, but then Colin came on song. And, and you were kind of like, mm, yeah, okay, this is... Uh, this is a little bit difficult because they're, they're starting to steal Mitsubishi's thunder. And obviously it was helping with the, with the family business. If, if Mitsubishi in general worldwide were doing well because they were promoting their rally art brands, which meant we had, uh, Evo's potentially going to be imported into the UK, which hadn't happened at that point. And there was all this talk for, for 1996 that Evo's were coming. Uh, and we were like, they've got to keep winning. They've got to keep winning because then we might get some Evos into the in, in, into the UK. And, uh, and yeah, we did get Evos into the UK. And for 1996, well, three quarters of the way through 95, we decided that uh, we were going to order two. And we did. We ordered two uh, Evo 3s based on the success that they had in the World Rally Championship. And one was uh, the height it was the height of luxury when you say it now one was to be made into a into a rally car which steve hill motorsport built for us i think the other one was basically our spares but it was a rolling spares it was a car we wrecked in it and everything and it was for me to try and get used to four-wheel drive get used to the all that power coming from a, a, an opal or a fox or nova as it is in the uk and then a, a honda civic uh, so we got this kind of Mitsubishi and it was based on the success that they were having that Mitsubishi UK decided to import them. Yep, they didn't win the championship. But as a rally fan, uh, as we all know, you always go and watch your home round. I'd been fortunate enough. I'd done my home round of the championship only the year before, 1994. I'd led my class and retired in mid-Wales uh, with a double drive shaft failure. 95, I wasn't competing at that time. Uh, the Mitsubishi was coming on stream for the following year. But it was all about kind of, let's go and watch it with your mates and things like that. And I remember the, we traveled the length and breadth of the country, sleeping in the cars like you do, cooking out little gas cylinders and gas stoves in the back of the car, basically bacon sandwiches for breakfast, bacon sandwiches for lunch, bacon sandwiches for dinner, all at the back of whatever cars we were in, Suzuki, Jiminy's, Mitsubishi Shoguns, whatever we had. Uh, but one of my friends had a Subaru, so he was all fully jacketed up, hatted up and everything. And I was kind of like, like thinking, oh my God, if you can't beat them, let's join them. And as a driver myself, the aim was always kind of like 
to get into the British Rally Championship and, and hope, if you got a factory drive, that you would end up doing the a few world rallies. And to do your home world rally was just an amazing feeling. And I remember watching the, the amount of people out, the traffic jams, the queues of cars getting into stages, people walking for miles and miles and miles. And there was a real massive buzz. And we're in... We're in a real prime right now in the World Rally Championship. You know, 17, 18, 19, 20 has been amazing. I, I still don't think we'll ever touch, particularly in Britain, we will ever touch the, that week again. Never. It was just unbelievable passion, noise, you know, sweet lamb, the fireworks and the, the, the air horns as McRae came into sight. And you stood there as a, as a wannabe rally driver who'd had a little bit of success but wanted the next step of, I, 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 I want that. That's what I want. I, I, I want to be that good and that famous that I want to come into the sweet lamb bowl and have fireworks going off, lighting up the sky that you could see the car without any spotlights or anything, the noise and the air horns, the cheering, and I was thinking, yeah. And I'd sat out since basically April and not driven a rally car, bar, a, a one-off in September on the track rod rally where I drove the Nissan Micra in the Micra Challenge. I'd done three rallies, and I kind of thought, did I really want it? That week, out with my mates watching it, uh, they were my service crew when I was competing and they kind of all, we all agreed that one week alone was like, we've got to get back to this. We've got to go and do it. We've got to have this kind of adrenaline rush. And, and just those moments of just that McRae coming through Sweet Lamb down into the bowl, through the water splash, over the jump and all that, you kind of thought, yeah, I, I want to be there. I want to be that good. I want to be that famous. I, I want that kind of adulation from fans of uh, just being that talented it was just quite staggering i remember we went to the final stage of the rally we watched the final stage and it was like how cool would it be to actually get to chester now and it was like it's impossible no way me and my mates decided it was no way possible but we had someone called steve rennie with us now steve rennie was basically his nickname was prospect Steve Rennie knew every road of every bit of forestry. We're in the middle of nowhere in the back end of the North Wales forest getting those finals, that final stage done. And he goes, we can make Chester. And I was like, there's not a chance. So we all piled into our cars and he found us a way and we stood in amongst the crowd watching Colin do his donuts, getting his trophy. And again, the noise and the passion and the atmosphere, it was just kind of like, yeah. Uh, you know, you, you'll... I was there, you know, and it was something that was very, very special and something you'll never, ever forget and, and something that really did bring rallying right to the forefront uh, and, and yeah, made Subaru a worldwide name. Uh, unfortunately, they beat Mitsubishi. We did get them back in the following years with Tommy Mackinnon and, and people like that, but what a season. Uh, and it reignited my passion uh, to, to go back to rallying pure and simply because of I, I wanted to become or try and become that good or that famous that you had people cheering your name and things like that. And, but even just to do your home world rally when I did it in 96 and things like that, and you see people walking for miles, you do kind of feel, even if your car 51 like I was, you feel 
a little bit like a superstar. Nothing like what the big boys feel like, but they gave you something that just made you feel a little bit special uh, and just want to continue doing it. And that was uh, the British public uh, and, a, and a guy from Scotland, a crew from Scotland, Colin McRae and Derek Ringer. Absolute Rally, the season of 95. 1995 then, I would have been 19 years old, just doing some quick maths on that. And I was I was into motorsport, I was already into motorsport. I'd sat and watched F1 with my dad on the TV, uh, and then we'd kind of taken it a bit further, so dad had, had taken us off to see some real motorsport. So we'd been to see uh, the Rallycross Grand Prix at Brands Hatch, which was always held in November. I live in the southeast, so that was an easy one to get to. And that, you know, that was absolutely epic. And we'd also, I'm pretty sure we'd been to see the London International Rally, which was the first rally that I saw in person. And that was, I'm pretty, was Malcolm Wilson on that one? I think it was Malcolm Wilson. They had a Finn as well, and they were in the Michelin Pilot Escort Cosworth. So yeah, I was, I was getting into it, and we were getting into going and watching motorsport live. Uh, you know, obviously at that time, you're, you're becoming aware yeah, already I, you know, I had, had a hero in Nigel Mansell, but you're becoming aware of, of Colin McRae. You know, I'm becoming aware of, of that I really, you know, although I loved F1 and it was great, I was kind of thinking, actually, do you know what, I think I might prefer this sort of slightly dirtier cousin of, of rallying and rallycross as well. You know, rallycross was my first live motorsport. Of course, that's what I do now, but rallying was my first sort of true love. I'd been to see the rallycross, but I really got into the rallying. And... and uh, so we were going we were going to go up to Rally GB and we went to the Mickey Mouse stages now you know with hindsight I'd love to have gone into the forest I would have absolutely loved to have gone into the woods but you know I, I don't know it was me my the, the guy who went on to become my co-driver Tim Slattery he came with us uh, we both had ridiculous we had long curly hair with an undercut that gives you a good idea of what a shadow I was um, and, uh, and my dad drove us up there in his Ford Orion you know and it was it was a proper adventure I think the three of us shared a travel lodge room or something and we went to see the Mickey Mouse stages probably because it was I think it was our first it might have been our first rally GP we might have gone in 94, but I'm pretty sure 95 was the first one. We definitely went in 96 because that was the F2 year where they rotated out the Group A cars and brought in the F2 cars. And that was wicked too, but I know this is about 95. And the, the, What I distinctly remember was Chatsworth. And we were stood up. We had elevation. I'm not quite sure. We were, we were close to the water splash. I'm pretty sure the cars came under us and then up behind us again. So maybe in between a lower road and the water splash. Of course, the water splash is where there's that famous shot of science coming through where he comes in a bit hard and smashes all the front grills out of the Impreza. But it was, I, I'd spent the year, you know, you, it was hard to follow, wasn't it, rallying in, back then? It wasn't quite as easy as it is now. Obviously, I've been reading about it in, in, uh, in Motoring News, as I think it was called then. And uh, I'd been using page 360 on Teletext. Oh, wow. I was, I was always on Teletext. It was ridiculous. You'd refresh Teletext more often than you refresh your Twitter feed now. You know, you're just checking whether or not there might be a result in from from whatever rally it was it was on. And it was, it was hilarious when I think about it. It was one and a half pages. It was probably about 200 words of text but I'd be desperate through the season trying to find out what the results were you know was McRae in there was he winning how was it going and you know the season had obviously been up and down we'd have the, the Toyota thing so suddenly we come to the last round we're, okay we've been to Catalonia and I remember I'm pretty sure I'd seen that on maybe on Top Gear wherever the report was I, I have a terrible memory anybody who knows you or me will, will tell you that I've got lots of stuff written down so I can't remember anything and I remember obviously the, the science thing and the team orders in Catalonia and I remember not being too happy about that 
and then it came to uh, it came to Rally GB. And so, so we've gone up, we're at Chatsworth, we've scientists come through, smash the grills at the front of the car. But my overriding memory of the whole thing is just the noise when McRae came through. You know, there were, obviously there were so many fans out that year, everywhere was absolutely packed. I love seeing the shots in the forest, and that's why I kind of wish I'd gone to the woods. But, you know, in the distance, bah, 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 the, the bark of the Impreza, that, that wonderful noise. And also back then, anti-lag was just savage. Like, anti-lag now is not at all savage compared to then. It, literally, if, if the car popped as it came past you, your ears rang. It was like someone had fired a shotgun. It was so basic compared to what it is now. But there was something that was raw about it, and of course, the, it was the way the cars had to be driven. So it, you had to chuck it into everything. Everything needed a bit of a Scandinavian flick to make the car turn in, and I'd miss that. That's the one thing I wish they'd do now, is is, is make the cars so you have to move them around a little bit more to, to force them to turn in. And so, you know, you'd see someone come in facing completely the wrong way, and they might have faced the wrong way. You know, that whether it used to be four, three, four times on a braking zone, you'd flip the car in, then out, then in, then out, then finally you'd get it to totally broadside, bang, bang, up through the gears, and McRae would appear, and the, everyone would be going mad. If they, You'd be standing up if you weren't standing up. It's the air horns, too. So in the distance, you'd hear the car coming, you'd hear the air horns, and he'd burst into view, more, somehow always more sideways than everybody else was, always a bit more committed than anyone else was. You know, and it, it was just, it was a wonderful experience. Chatsworth's the only one I can remember going to. I'm pretty sure we went to two stages, but that's the one that I really vividly remember. And, and then the rest of the rally I would have watched on, on TV. So I'm sure it would have been um, Top Gear Rally Report, wouldn't it, then? With the famous music. Bah, 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 you know, that one. And um, it was, uh, again, I'm hoping I'll get all these, these things right. They were leading, weren't they? And then I'm sure they had a problem with the car and bent the suspension and ended up further back. And somehow came through and, and still managed to annihilate everyone. Managed to, you know, just the, the stage times they were setting were ludicrous. Uh, science I've since read, you know, was, was blown away by the by the pace of McRae. There was the famous quote, wasn't there, where he said to uh, Tony, where he said, no problem, Tony, uh, about whatever pace it was they needed to, to make up the time. And it was just this wonderful, heroic story. He's come there slightly on the back foot due to team orders, which now I'm a grown-up. I understand why the team orders are there. They needed to win series. Come there on that back foot, destroyed everyone, then had this mad recovery. And I, I love that footage and, of, of them coming through the stage at the last stage where they're coming up to the, to the finish line and Derek Ringer starts laughing as they cross the finish line. It's just, uh, it's just, it's a wonderful memory. And, and for me, it was it was the inspiration of, of those cars being thrown around, the noise um, and, and the heroics of, of McRae, the, you know, then the, the donuts and the top falling off the trophy and stuff. It, it, it's just seemed for me, it's just, it's such a vivid memory and I, I wanted to be Colin McRae I wanted to be a factory rally driver you know and, and so so I went off and I bought myself a Vauxhall Nova rally car and I knew nothing about the cars at all my mum says we don't know anything about cars I'm, well yeah fair enough I didn't have any money so I had to learn about cars and, and that went on to the Nova up to sort of national competitions and, and then I went on to become a motorsport instructor and then somehow I've, I've managed to go on and, and become a commentator so I ne you know I never made it as a factory rally driver but I, if it wasn't for the likes of Colin McRae I never would have become a television commentator and I, I wouldn't be commentating on a world championship motorsport so I still made it to the world championship somehow and that's a hundred percent thanks to the inspiration of Colin and I must say as well of Richard Burns we were so lucky to have two uh 
fantastic rallying heroes in, in the time in which I was growing up and, and being inspired by them has, has led to a, a lot of the things I've achieved so I'm very grateful for that we're very lucky I wish both of them were still around because I'd love to have seen either of them in rallycross I think it might have uh, might have floated their boat Derek might have rung their bell would have been great wouldn't it but um, yeah what heroes fantastic this is Absolute Rally the season of 95 through the opening two days of the event and extends a steady lead over his teammate Tommy Mackinnon. Outright fastest on eight of the opening 18 special stages, Ericsson is definitely at home in his home country. second behind your teammate Kenneth will team orders apply tomorrow I don't have any idea that's up to, that's up to the manager we'll see tomorrow oh I don't know I will try to stay ahead of Tommy if it's possible and I think I have a good chance do you think team orders will be put into play I don't know well I don't think we're in a position to give team orders I mean I know they've come in here tonight a second apart and it's you know, there's going to be a big fight that's natural but uh, we'll see how things go in the morning we'll see what the conditions are like the Lancer Evo 3 with its distinctive deep chin spoiler and huge radiator air intake making its debut in the hands of Tommy Mackinnon 10th overall and Andrea Aghini Mackinnon coming to terms with the new car on unaccustomed tarmac very quickly indeed Sophisticated new transmission system makes the car even easier to drive on the limit and Mackinnon is taking full advantage. But he's comprehensively outpaced by Andrea Aghini. The Italian tarmac specialist certainly knows the way to pedal the new Mitsubishi. end of day two, it's obvious that the rugby-based rally art concern have got a potential winner on their hands for the future. It's all the better for the Mitsubishi team because Aghini rolled his car and nearly destroyed it on the eve of the rally in shakedown testing. But notwithstanding that, he's sixth and Mackinnon's tenth as the rally enters its final stages. Enjoying the highly distinctive Australian tree line stages. Meanwhile, Tommy Mackinnon, the flying fin in the second Mitsubishi, was pushing just as hard, moving up to a fine third place. Nineteen ninety-five was, I suppose, the the year where the Mitsubishi effort really started to take hold, and people started to take a little bit of notice, I suppose, of what the Evo was starting to become, and I suppose the rise of Tommy Mackinnon also. So I thought it'd be quite a good idea to get somebody back on who was who was with us quite recently. He's, of course, now he's more famous for being Ken Block's manager, but uh, back in '95, he was very much part of the rally art effort, um, working out at rugby. So I reached out to Derek Dorsey. He's joined us once again, and he talks about his 
95 and what was really going on I suppose behind the scenes for Mitsubishi at this point yeah so the 95 season for us was uh, for Mitsubishi was quite eventful um, we we were in the middle of in the middle of the season we debuted the new Evolution 3 which was our, uh, our big step up really in development Evolution 2 was um, a really good car but on the horizon we knew that we had to do some changes uh, transmission engine and a bit of chassis work um, and also obviously Mitsubishi we had a facelift of the car so that came that came in uh, mid-season so the start of the year we really were looking to try and get a result out of um, Sweden um, and uh, we did that but um, you know the actual target was Corsica which wasn't one of our usual events to um, debut anything new but it came on board that, that Corsica would be our uh, Evolution 3 debut so starting the season um, really interesting year um, new regulations in the sport less servicing some remote, they brought in some ideas of remote servicing which was which played into a an interest in Monte Carlo with tyre choice and drivers having to pull studs out of tyres on the side of the road and switch discs sizes if they're running a tarmac disc or a gravel disc for um, snow. Um, so we went into Monte Carlo, all the teams collectively, not really knowing, um, you know, not really knowing what to expect. Um, it wasn't so clear about how easy it would be to change tyres. Um, so that first event was really a bit of a lottery and, um, you know, Tommy was a bit of a master on uh, mixed conditions. He'd always, we'd always, you know, normally go for a bit of a gamble on the tyres. Um, so Monte Carlo for, for us was like our first event with Tommy. Um, that event we ran Tommy and Andrea Gini. Andrea came on board to do the three time at rounds, Corsica and uh, Spain and Monte Carlo. And then uh, Tommy was backed up by Kenneth Erickson, obviously, who was a, driver from the previous season so going into Monte Carlo um, we uh, we basically came out of that with a four for Tommy and a six for Andrea and Tommy really uh, was running as, as high as third I think going into the final leg um, and um, uh, he slipped back behind Newhar on that last day um, on, on the last stage which was unfortunate he had a bit of a problem with um, the transmission which we'd never seen before the car went into wheel wheel drive but it was a fantastic event. Carlos winning that event. Colin Colin didn't finish. Um, he didn't finish the first two events, which was a great uh, return for him at the end of the season to win the championship when he never bought anything out of those first two events. So, um, yeah, it was an interesting first event. And then we went to Sweden, the second round. Um, not like not like the current current years. We had full snow and ice. It was brilliant conditions out there. Brilliant conditions for the test, the recce and um, the rally itself and uh, yeah the, the, as I said we were trying to develop it we were doing a lot of testing getting in preparation for uh, Corsica but Sweden uh, we came away with a 1-2 and um, it was it was pretty uh, pretty interesting event the, uh, even at the end when we actually won it there was actually team orders applied and um, it was very uh, it was very atmospheric in the team to get to that position um, Kenneth and Tommy were dominating the event. Um, the, the, the Subarus had a problem, I think, with the oil pressure uh, relief valve in the engine, I think it was. And uh, their cars didn't make it to the second morning, I believe it was. And, uh, yeah, it was um, it was a pretty special event. We would always take our own, um, our own tyres to Sweden to a... 
a gentleman that used to put our studs in for us and actually uh, we used to have a special glue and we really uh, we benefited we really benefited from that on that event we did a number of years so uh, Kenneth won the event and Tommy was a uh, Tommy was second but going into the last morning um, Tommy was uh, I think he was I think he was he was literally was like a second of difference going into that last morning and Kenneth and Kenneth was like you know they knew team orders replied that evening so the order was for Kenneth to win the event and Tommy to back him up but uh, on that first stage the last morning uh, it snowed really heavily overnight and uh, Kenneth just swept the road so Tommy Tommy took 30 seconds out of Kenneth on the first stage and then of course we were into trying to manage the situation which um there was, there, was, there was actually massive betting taking place on the event, and uh, the people weren't very happy. Even even with uh, Kenneth being his home event, uh, when Tommy stopped on the last stage for thirty seconds to let Kenneth pass, there was a lot of people that weren't very happy. And uh, Andrew took a, a bit of stick for that, but uh, you know the agreement was there the night before, and. Uh, and that's how it stuck. Kenny won the event, and Tommy was second. So that, that really leapfrogged our season for us, and uh, it was a great motivation knowing that you know we've got the evolution of the car coming along. So that was that really helped us. Portugal, we never did Portugal that year. We stepped aside and let the Group M boys um, take over the entry. We actually uh, we were pushing really hard, uh, building cars to try and catch up with the long haul events. So um, our next event was um, Corsica. Um, it was it's a tricky event at the best of times. Uh again we brought back Andrea to support Tommy. Um and unfortunately on the shakedown before the event, um Andrea rolled the car. And uh we got the car back to to uh, outside the hotel where we're working and it became quite clear it wasn't wasn't gonna be possible to uh, repair. So we um, we ended up uh, utilising a test car and stripping that overnight, uh, stripping the entry car, moving all the new body panels across, all the cross members, engine, gearbox, dampers, wiring harness, dash, everything came out across. So it was a massive rebuild. And uh, luckily uh, on the event, Andre was uh, extremely quick and he rewarded the, the boys with uh, a third overall. So again, we managed the podium on that event and that was a debut for the Evolution 3 so we had a transmission upgrade we had an engine upgrade um, we'd done quite a bit of work we'd light, lightweighted in the car so we left Corsica leading the, manu- the manufacturer's championship was uh, which was brilliant for us so yeah, that was a debut everybody loved the car I thought oh, still my favourite car out of, out of all the Evolution models that we did so leaving uh, leaving France we ended up shipping everything across to New Zealand. And uh, New Zealand was um, a tricky event. I mean, going back then, it was 600 kilometers, 660 kilometers of stages. So, you know, it was a, it was a long old four-day event. So um, we we struggled on that event. We uh, we had a, a few issues with setup. And um, um, I think Kenneth finished fifth. And then Tommy had his famous accident where he slid off backwards uh, whilst he was leading. He'd basically set an unbelievable pace. Um, I think he was quickest on the third and fourth stage, and there's seven, eight, and nine, I think he was quickest. And on stage 10, there's some discrepancy, but pretty sure that uh, there's a misheard or a misquoted pace note, and um, Tommy came into a right-hander just too quick and slid off. 
So we lost Tommy quite early um, and we struggled a bit with um, setup with the cambered roads as well. So um, we came away from there um, needing us to look at geometry again. Um, uh, uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was a good event for him. We always liked New Zealand, but um, yeah, Colin won that event. I think Didier was second as well. So Colin had started to show some promise that to to make his proper title chance. So we'd already we we were doing really well in the championship as in the manufacturers, but that one event made us slip back slightly. So a bit unfortunate. And then we went straight to Australia. Those two events were back to back, obviously from a logistical point of view. So uh, New Zealand to Australia, we made the, the jump across to there. Did some more refinements to the to the the engine on the on the Lancer. I remember that point, and uh, we had some good modifications from come from him, Mr. Nagaki, who designed originally designed the 4G63 engine, and uh, we uh, we we'd done a small test before, and yeah, it was looking really good. Um, and then we actually won the event, and that was probably our catalyst to go into to, uh, 1996. But uh, the engine mods were a big step for us, and uh, it was a massive fight between Kenneth and Colin. They were literally swapping seconds on the last morning, um, and we we had Tommy support in a supporting role. He'd managed to get up to third as well, so we were looking really good. And the last morning, unfortunately. Um, I think I think Newhar again picked Tommy to the podium um, after Tommy had hit a big rock and broke the upright. And Australian Army still managed to bring the car home fourth. But um, yeah, Kenneth won that event, and it was a massive boost for the team. Um, it was such a brilliant fight with Colin. They were all in both of them, and uh, the two long stages, Kenneth just you know just pulled away slightly enough to win the event. So um, yeah, that was that was really good, 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 good fight. Um, so we left we left Australia in really high spirits, and uh, we're going back to Europe for the last two rounds. Uh, last but one round was Catalonia, which is a famous event. Everybody remembers some of the uh, Subaru management trying to stop a certain driver because a team was applied and. Um, yeah, it was, it, the team order thing was never. I'm never a big f- fan of it, but we'd we'd actually obviously thrown it into the car market on the on Sweden, and then the fight between Carlos on his home event and Colin, they'd agreed uh, they'd agreed to actually hold station the night before, and I think there was some discussion between Colin and Carlos to keep on pushing. So um, when they came back in the last morning, it was obvious that they weren't holding team orders and. Uh, I think Mr. Spiller and Mr. Ringer are famously seen trying to slow one of the drivers on the stage. So we went to the event. We were quite uh, confident. You know, again, we got Andrea again. Andrea finished fifth. Um, he uh, he basically he benefited from, I think, Didier had a problem on the last morning. Um, but we were, we were we were quite clear with that event that we needed to do some damper work for 96. We changed damper supply and damper direction for the start of the season, but we struggled and we struggled for pace against the, the Subarus and the Toyotas at that point. And Delacour, Delacour was really quick on on the tarmac. So, yeah, it was a disappointing event for us. Uh, Tommy had an accident, pushing a bit too hard, and um, didn't really. We struggled with the pace on that one. And then the championship for was was going down to the wire between. Um, Yuha, Colin, and um, and Carlos. So it's going to be a massive battle in the in GB. So last event of the season, um, 
everybody was uh, everybody wound up completely to fever pitch for the event. Um, Richard Richard Burns was a supporting role at Subaru at that point, which he came across to us that following year. So we were watching Richard quite closely. But uh, what a fantastic event! And the uh, unbelievable scenes with Colin uh, winning that winning the championship, and uh, we had a disaster. It was uh, not the way he wanted to finish the season. I think uh, we had a transmission problem with Tommy. He was. He was. Uh, we, had, we were leading at the end of the first day with super special stages. We had you know, Kenneth and Tommy were leading by a fair bit. And but the, the, the Monday morning, I'll never forget it. Hampsley Forest Colin book took out thirty. I think it was twenty-eight seconds from Kenneth, and just catapulted himself into the lead. It was. It was the stage. Um, very tricky. Very tricky event. A very very tricky stage, and um, Colin just dominated it. Never really. I don't even really look back after that. Um, so we we basically, uh, I think Kenny went off on the probably the second day of stage eighteen or nineteen. Uh, so we were we were we were basically back at home watching what was happening on the last day. So yeah, good good season. It was our, it was a fundamental season for us. We debuted Evolution three. We already knew going coming out of GB Rally, we had the Monte Carlo test and Sweden test uh, ready for 1996. So um, yeah, I enjoyed the season. It was brilliant. We had a lot of success, a lot of uh, stuff that went on in the background that was really really good. Um, but we were really looking forward to the '96 season. Absolute Rally, the season of '95. And then, with co-driver Welshman Nicky Grist on board, was still running well. Set three fastest stage times and was holding on to fourth place. German Armin Schwartz was just outside the top five too. But on the very next stage, something was obviously wrong with the Toyota's rear suspension. A rock had broken the wishbone, giving the German unwanted four-wheel steering. But he survived to start the final leg in eighth place, with his teammate Juha Kankinen fourth and Didier Oriol fifth. Willing to do anything for a better view of the hero Delacour, who is spearheading the Ford attack. That's an opinion that's been shared by Juha Kankinen, the flying fin with Nicky Grist on the maps. Drive by Kankanen moves him ahead of Oriol in the final stages. He's heading home in four. What was really interesting also about the 95 season was the fact that we had four manufacturers, but we also had two tyre manufacturers. Now, three of the teams went with Michelin. Only one of the teams went with Pirelli. Of course, that was Subaru, ProDrive. Now, I'm not entirely sure whether that created them against us attitude, but I'd be very surprised if that wasn't kind of the attitude that was taken by, you know, ProDrive, Subaru, Pirelli, because obviously all the others were, were going in a slightly different direction. But I thought it'd be quite good to get somebody from behind the scenes and get somebody who was there again. And the man who was Colin's tyre engineer and the man who was working for Pirelli at the time was Jerry Freeman. And I thought it'd be quite good to get some of the stories from that 95 season from Jerry Freeman. What do I remember about uh, 1995? Well, it was probably... No, no, no. Definitely. 
the best world championship that I won whilst I was at Pirelli. It was uh, it was a great, obviously, because you've got the home hero, and you know Colin was a a good friend of mine. Um, but it actually started quite strangely. I mean, the first first event of the year in Monte Carlo, which is without doubt the hardest rally to deal with. If it was all dry, like most most people know, you know if you have a wet rally or a dry rally, it's relatively easy. If you have a rally that's mixed, wet and dry, it's difficult. If you have a rally that's wet, dry, icy, snowy, and anything else that you can think of in between, uphill, down dale, round mountains, then that just it makes it so difficult. And I'm sure everybody knows how you have to go and test with this. You've got all the different roads, and so you end up testing slicks on snow, and you test snow tires on dry time. Anyway, so the start of the year is hard enough. Uh, I remember the night before the rally in Monte Carlo, Colin saying to me, should we, go and, should we go and get something to eat? And there's quite a famous place in Monte Carlo. I assume it's still there. I've not been for a long time. Um, called Stars and Bars. And we went in there. And there was myself, Colin, uh, one of the lads who worked for us. And Colin said, oh, my mate's meeting us as well. So we sat down and we had a big burger each. And we were generally chatting. And the guy who sat with us was, you know, probably reasonably well known. And in came Monaco royalty, and it was that kind of place, you know. And uh, we got up and we were walking back, and the lad who was with me said, Do you know that mate of Collins? I'm sure I know who he is. I said, Yeah, that's David Coulthard. And so <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite memorable when you get plans like that with you. But I remember. I remember Monte Carlo being very mixed and very difficult, and then Colin didn't finish, of course. Then he didn't finish the next one. Carlos did did very well, because one thing you could always rely on with Carlos, he, you know, he had it, always had it between his ears, you know, and would, would drive very sensibly. Um, but then, really, all changed mid-season when uh, Carlos fell off his mountain bike. Um, damaged his shoulder quite badly. I think from memory he only missed one rally. Uh, but he was badly hurt. And he was he was so brave when he came back after that because you could see pain in his eyes he was driving. Um, but then it kind of, it, it all, you know, Colin started doing very well and it all balanced itself out. And then, of course, you arrive at Catalonia. I mean, from anybody on the outside, you could probably see that Catalonia... It would have been a, a very sensible thing just to knock it on the head the way it was, let Carlos win, and then there would have been equal points going into the last rally. And I'm sure Colin would have had the advantage there anyway. Um, you know, but we... That, it all became a bit of a malarkey, really, and we were all in the service area um, waiting for them to uh, to see what happened and... A lot of the boys from Subaru went off trying to flag him down, and I thought, good luck with that. I'm glad it's not me. And eventually, you know, everybody knows what happened and all the malarkey. So, I mean, with that, the two, the two most, I suppose, interesting things eventually in the year were the malarkey with Toyota and, uh, and obviously... Uh, 
you know, this this with Colin and Carlos going into the, the last the last round. But I don't know whether people remember this. Maybe came is a kind of aside, but we used to have terrible difficulty in Australia because of all those little ball bearing things. The, car, the cars used to slide all over the place. So the year before, as far as I remember, which, you know, I might, I might be wrong by a year or so, but the year before, we had a Pirelli, the K pattern, which obviously, I mean, they still have exactly the same today, the K. And we did a test with Armin Schwartz in Australia, and we found this cutting the tire on the outside made it a lot better on this kind of very loose gravel. So we, we kind of stuck to this a little bit and tried this outside cut on several of the rallies that tended to be a little bit more dirty and mucky or soft, you know, Argentina and New Zealand and places. It worked very well. So, Previo, uh, who is quite possibly the smartest tyre engineer I know, decided that really what we ought to do, instead of having, you know, to cut these tyres every time, we ought to actually make a tyre with a pattern that was a little bit more spaced out. Everybody will know that as the KM tyre. So before the RAC rally, that was uh, the first time we ever tried this new KM tyre. Obviously, they were left and right. So, and not having time to make them, we just had left as far as I remember. Um, but we tried this tyre uh, I did the test with Colin, and we went in, did quite a lot of testing, and this tyre was obviously in the muck and the dirt that bit faster than uh, than the K. So we thought we had a bit of a secret weapon. And the bit that I really remember was going into stage eight, after all the uh, the playing about stages on the first day, the first real stage was very early in the morning. And as far as I remember, it was, it, well, it was hamsterly, but it would have been about 17 miles, something like that. And you could see the look. I mean, there were days with Colin where they, you could have just put a bicycle tire on his car and he would have won because he just had it. And, he, and he, you could see it in his face. But... We had the, uh, the the gravel cars going through, and their report came back, and we said, right, Colt, this is it, we use the new tyre. And he said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. This is exactly the situation that we tested it. And Colin said, okay, put it on. So we ordered it, it was put on, and the bit that I really never remember, never forget, was, as Colin went out to the motorhome, Derek Ringer turned back and walked to me, was quite close to me and said, Jerry, are you absolutely sure? And I said, yeah, this is what we've done. And he said, because this is our world championship. And I thought, hmm, no pressure there then. So he went into Hamsterley and give or take a second or two, Colin took 30 seconds off everybody in Hamsterley. And I was proper happy. <laughs> you know, I mean, he really, really went for it. And then, of course, you get the uh, the tire hands nightmare. He goes into the next stage, which was Pundashore, which was 
ludicrous length, I think it was about 37, 38 miles, and has a puncture and drops two minutes. So from going to 30 seconds faster than everybody in 17 miles, he has a puncture in the next one and drops two minutes. So, you know, after that, you just, you just saw the look in his eyes. And he just, he was flat out. And it, it was, it was really quite inspiring. I mean, for those, whilst he was incredibly nervous and incredibly kind of tense, you kind of just knew because he just decided he was winning and that was it. And, uh, well, from our point of view, I mean, you know, other people's points of view might be slightly different. But, uh, yeah, we got to Chester and that was just fantastic. That was, I mean, you know, the, a lot of people used to congregate on the uh, on the podiums at the end and have a big wave, but... You know, that's what I really, really remember. That the people there were all cheering. It was like being at football. It was fantastic. Uh, yeah, certainly uh, my best world championship. Round five of the World Rally Championship, and the teams moved down under. New Zealand for Rally New Zealand, one of the most spectacular events, and some of the most spectacular scenery in the world. Winner Colin McRae picks up the challenge from the Maori warrior. The traditional Maori greetings from tenders. Not around though to rub noses is Carlos Saints. Out with a shoulder injury. That means Richard Burns and Possum Bourne will support Colin McRae in his defence. The double victory. First, Ericsson takes the advantage on the opening state of the day. Then, McRae and Ericsson dead heat on the second. McRae takes the third, Ericsson the fourth. The tension is so great, the two drivers can't even face one another. This is Absolute Rally, the season of 95. I also want to get the outlook of one of my other colleagues from the Absolute Rally podcast, Trevor Agnew. Of course, we sometimes forget he was a 2003 production World Rally Champion alongside Martin Rowe in a Group N Pro Drive Subaru. So I thought I'd get his take on 1995 and how important it was for his career. And also, I thought I'd reach out to a friend of the show, Jamie Arkell, of course, the man behind the Gravel Crew on Facebook. And uh, he was a very, very young man at the time. But uh, I thought I'd get his thoughts as well. So first up, we've got Trevor Agnew and then we'll go over to Jamie Arkell. 1995 is strange actually because the first part of the year I don't remember that much about it I remember Colin got off to quite a bad start and for me that was the focus of the year um, it was only when Carlos had his problem later in the year that he was able to catch up of course we all know that one of the first uh, drama filled parts of the year was in, in Spain so two parts to that I'm sure will be discussed elsewhere in the special but uh, clearly we had the Toyota issue with the cheat device and uh, we had Subaru team orders and uh, for someone who was such a big Colin McRae and Derek Ringer fan I, I first met both of them in 1988 it would have been on the circuit of Ireland I was co-driving uh, Robin Phillips in Volkswagen Golf GTI Robin had been part of the junior team the year before and uh, before the first stage there was a big delay 
And of course, we had all heard of Colin McRae. We knew about his exploits at the Sunbeam. So this is the first uh, year that he was driving the Nova, at least certainly uh, a year where he started off in the Nova. I think in 1988, he did 23 rallies and used seven different models of car in that year. So that's the uh, the amount of practice and the uh, and the devotion that he had. Of course, Derek Ringer was with him all that time, and uh, we didn't get so far in the rally. We stopped in the first stage, but even on the recce, we had good fun uh, with Colin. I remember that, and uh, and off he went. Then uh, the following year, he uh, joined Ford. I think he did two years of Ford before starting his eight-year spell with Subaru. Um, so the next time I met him then was in 1991. Uh, I'd been away backpacking for two and a half years or so, and I come back. Again, Robin Phillips was doing uh, Colin's gravel notes, and he asked me to go with him. Um, so on the Ulster Rally in 1991, uh, that was our job. I remember, and it's a vague memory, but I definitely remember at one point when we were doing the gravel notes that we changed a left to a right, and it was in a six. It was one of his flat-out notes, which I thought was quite bizarre at the time, and I might be wrong, but it's just something that's there at the back of my mind uh, that we did. Uh, he didn't do well in the rally. He had a transmission problem. He had effectively ruled out the British Championship for him in 1991. Uh, as I say, he moved off to Ford then, 92, 92. Sorry, he um, he continued then 1992, 93 with Subaru and the World Championship, and then of course into into that uh, 1995 season. So him and Derek then uh, got into uh, as it was a Network Q Rally, uh, and the puncture at the start of it was just mind blowing. You know the fact that it was in Pondershaw, 40 miles long, and. Uh, and lost all that time, but of course, he'd won the rally the year before, he knew that he was faster, and he clawed it back uh, to the finish that we had in Chester, where I think every one of the two million people who attended the event will tell you that they were there. Uh, I'm expecting somebody to pitch up and say they were in the back of the car when he did all those donuts. I definitely wasn't there, even though I was doing a lot of work in England at the time. I, uh, for some reason, didn't end up going to the event. But what was good for me was uh, I moved over to England in 1996, and I went to live near uh, Pro Drive near Banbury. And I was able just to find out a little bit more about how that, how special that was by those people who were actually there and part of the team over the years. I got to know quite a few people, including Dave Baker, who was constant one mechanic, and, and just regaling some of the stories is always uh, quite nice to hear about that particular event. But it wasn't just Colin Wynn, of course. Carlos uh, finished second, and that was the one-two in the championship. Subaru won the manufacturers. But, of course, uh, Richard Burns and Robert Reid were third. And... Uh, Colin's brother Alistair McRae with Chris Wood alongside on that occasion uh, Alistair usually a Dave Senior with him but on that occasion he Chris Wood they finished fourth and of course uh, Elvin Evans very fast father Gwyndaf Evans and Howard Davis uh, they finished sixth uh, I think it was in an RS2000 that year so that really set up British rallying and you know we all piggied back piggybacked on the, on the back of uh, being on the front page of newspapers at that particular time so that really got me excited about being asked then to do the British Championship in 1986 and getting to meet all these heroes who had been watching from afar and uh, it certainly gave me the inspiration to continue very soon after that uh, I was able to pick up people like Richard Burns who mentored me and David Lapworth 
but you know it played a key part in my motivation to uh, to and give me confidence I suppose in a way where I could actually have a go at this myself. This is a, a young lad from South Armagh who uh, over the years did, you know, rallying with my hobby. I didn't do, think much more of it than that. So uh, those events of 95 certainly uh, were a big key for me just to progress in the sport and, and to meet people over those couple, next couple of years uh, that had a big influence on in what I was able to do in the sport. Absolute Rally. The season of 95. A sea of, of, of blue and gold, and I had no idea that I was uh, I was hankering after a cigarette livery at the time either. Um, I, I, my dad was uh, was a massive rally fan, uh, and also a very sort of passionate Scot, uh, and I inherited both of these things in a rally from a rally point of view quite early on. Um, I was aware of McRae winning, but because I was quite young, it was only in 94 that I began to follow it regularly and then obviously the way that Colin won the RAC in 1994 completely cemented everything um, I seem to recall I, I pressed my dad for us to go to uh, to see it live the very next year but it never came to pass so I ended up watching it as closely as was possible in the 90s and buying a hell of a lot of autosports and motorsport newses to, uh, to keep up to speed with how uh, the title chase was going from a Cray point of view because again back then I was so young that the idea of rooting for anyone else or at least even seeing the bigger picture as a sport was quite hard you know I was fixated on Infretzer's Boxer's McRae and everything else um, <laughs> and uh, and probably nursed uh, a, a disliking of Carlos Science completely uh, without, without any reason whatsoever but um, <laughs> that's how things were uh, and I remember even as a kid, it seemed that 1995 was a particularly good year for the WRC in terms of intrigue, because you had the turbo gate thing from Toyota, which, which as again, as a child, I had no concept of understanding the engineering behind it. I just knew that I remember my dad explaining that more boost equals more power and, and that kind of thing. And, and that completely intrigued me as a child, uh, and it continues to today. Uh, but it really was just McRae and everything else. I'm becoming completely obsessed with a sport I'd already enjoyed a lot before, but hopelessly uh, obsessed with it. Uh, and then come, you know, November, and uh, when it all came good from a McRae point of view, um, well, I don't want to get too personal. It's probably one of the, the happiest uh, sort of memories of my childhood. Of my dad being absolutely over the over over you know, overjoyed completely losing it and he was a very calm man um and, and just because this person mccray had won and and it was only i guess dare say a few years later when i realized and started going to rallying myself how big an achievement it was for a brit to have won you know for a scot but certainly you know and how how little heritage we have on on the the global old scene in terms of rallying um and it probably didn't help that then a few years later it became brit domination became something almost uh, something of a given but uh, at the time you know that was just me sold there and then the drivers championship was now a straight fight between mccray and science each on 70 points with Toyota excluded, the manufacturer's title will be fought out between Mitsubishi and Subaru. 
On the 22nd of November 1995, Colin McRae made history. Victory on the network QRAC rally confirmed the Scot as the first Briton ever to become world driver's champion. It was a title which hung right in the balance until the eighth and final round in one of the most dramatic seasons of rallying ever. Colin McRae, 1995 World Rally Champion. Seems a bit strange, doesn't it? I think it'll take a while to settle in. It seems rather fitting the last person who we hear from on this particular two-part special is David Richards from ProDrive, the man, of course, who masterminded what was going on at ProDrive, along with many other people who he talks about in this piece. And our own Jack Bangin sat down with David Richards to talk about 1995. I have to admit that I'm not a great one for... For, for story memories or, or looking backwards at all I, um, I've uh, uh, and it, sometimes it takes a bit of prompting to remind me of all the things that went on but I have to say that in the last couple of months I've been to various functions and people have sort of talked about what happened in 95 and uh, obviously spoken to people colleagues within ProDrive about it all and it's um, and it slowly comes back and you sort of it was um, it was a bit of a blur that year if I'm honest with you we never expected to win the championship it was uh, it was quite a, a challenge and I remember at the start of the year Subaru saying to me and meeting the chairman and he said to me he said no it's not not realistic we're up against the might of Toyota and we're just little Subaru little did we know what was to unfold in the latter part of the year so I suppose if I look back at that season there were lots of sort of small hiatuses if you like there was sort of you know the, the early part of the year which is probably fairly normal if I'm honest with you the first half of the year then of course we had Carlos and so uh, when we looked like we are in a starting to get in a good position Carlos falls off it told me it was a bicycle at the time I subsequently found out it was an enduro motorbike which I um, wasn't best pleased about and um, did his shoulder in and uh, so we thought that was the end of the game then we thought that really was uh, was it and, uh, and then of course the, the next stage of the, the saga was when Toyota were found out to have um, uh, had that uh, turbocharger uh, breach, and, they, and when that came out, that was just that was quite that was quite a stunning moment. And that uh, to think that a major company like uh, Toyota could do such a thing, you know, we always work in the grey. I always tell my guys that sort of, you know, I don't mind you push the boundaries to the grey, but never put me in a position where I've got something that's indefensible. And that was clearly indefensible. So that was a sort of a mega moment, if you like, of uh, when Toto was suddenly put on the sidelines. I suppose that was the point in time when we suddenly thought, wow, this is going to be gifted to us. And um, then, of course, the, uh, the challenge as to which driver it was going to be and uh, how that was going to unfold. And I know at the time I was sort of the villain of the piece, if you like, in uh, in Spain. Uh, I can that that is one of those meetings I do remember quite well, and I remember the, how that unfolded in uh, Lorette de Mar, a little seaside village that most people go for the holidays. I I certainly wouldn't go there now, but thinking back of those, what happened that weekend, it was um, the night before we sort of dominated the event and. Um, we're first and second and looking uh, very strong. 
and uh, it was clear that to win the manufacturer's title we just had to maximize the points so it was, um, the night before I remember sitting down with uh, Colin and Jimmy and talking to them about look it's uh, yeah we're going to have to call team orders and uh, just get ourselves to the finish and yeah, it never goes down very well those conversations drivers don't uh, don't appreciate it but it was uh, it was something that had to be done I was fairly robust in what I intended to happen and uh, yeah of course Carlos wound Colin up a lot and I think the next morning there was a bit of jibe between the two of them and uh, like red rag to a bull with Colin and off he went and um, everyone's seen the scenes in that last stage with uh, Nigel Riddle, one of our guys stood in the middle of the road with John Spiller, the team manager and uh, and then of course the, the drama in the in the high street of Lorette de Mar when Colin, I insisted that Colin had to do what he agreed to do and uh, to his credit and you know I look back now and you know it was um, we're both young people and we sort of you know Colin, Colin was obviously still very uh, very volatile and the the um, discussions we had there and Jimmy quietly uh, stoically in the background sort of trying to keep the peace between us all and um, to his credit Colin ultimately agreed and um and we went, of course, into the final round in uh, UK with uh, equal points, and uh, that was a sort of that was big pressure, to be honest with you. That uh, strangely enough, I you know I'm so used to taking pressure over the years, but that looking at you know um, Carlos always thought you know we biased everything towards Colin, so he had this view that whatever happened, he wasn't going to be able to win. Um, I think that was. That's clearly fundamentally wrong because everything was equal in the team, and we we behaved probably we made even more of an effort to make sure that Carlos saw that as well. Um, but uh, uh, so it was it was quite tense. The atmosphere was very tense in those last uh, three days, four days. Um, Carlos sort of you drove his usual professional way, and uh, and Colin went off like a scalded cat, and. Uh, some of the times were just sort of extraordinary when you look back at those uh, those things. He had a, a few incidents during the rally. I can't even remember them now. Um, it was all a bit of a blur. And uh, but then, of course, that scene in Chester at the end of the event. And what what strikes me, I look back now, and um, it's hard to imagine now when you look at the World Championship today. But you look back now, and the crowds lining the forests, the um, Scottish flags being waved everywhere, the newspapers full of it. Um, not just the the sports pages, but the front pages of newspapers. It was um, it was like you know, like sort of. England winning the World Cup, like sort of England in cricket taking the ashes. It was something of that monumental scale. And anyone who wasn't there at the time will sort of find it hard to imagine, but those of us that were will remember it with extraordinary uh, affection. And at the finish, of course, in Chester, the, um, the magic scenes at Chester Racecourse with the, the team together and um, all of us together as well with uh, with Carlos there and uh, Richard there, everybody. Um, it was um, very special indeed. And the party 
Chester went on a long time and the party continued for some time afterwards and I remember going up to Lanark where he received the freedom of the city and uh, and uh, a big party at the end of the season and uh, I was reminded the other day actually of the party we had at the end of that year it was uh, it was actually not far from our base in, in Banbury at, uh, at the Heritage Centre in Gaydon and uh, at the end of the evening we um, had Colin get up and make a speech and uh, just we all thank Colin and then we pulled back the curtain and uh, we gave him the car that he won the championship in and uh, uh, it was uh, a very very sort of uh, that was when Colin was left a bit speechless I'd say and that was a, a special special moment so I guess um, there's a loads of times during that year 95 when I can look back and reflect on them I bump into people every day and say I was there I saw what happened and um, it brings back all the memories what about you mentioned Subaru and, and the expectations that they had and, and you know not thinking they could uh, take on Toyota but what were the pro drive expectations going into that year David because I know you always you always set yourself lofty goals and it's one of the reasons why you know pro drive has become the success it is and, and, and everything else that you do as well so what, what what were your expectations going into that year and was it a year where you know even though Subaru weren't expecting so much that you thought you know maybe there was a you know an off chance that, that something could be done there well, I think, you know, you, 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 we always set ourselves fairly stringent targets, and you're quite right. We we do have sort of uh, aloof expectations, if you like, of our, what we can achieve. But um, I think, to be fair, if you're up against the likes of Mike Sotorito, we set our goal around winning some events and sort of being there and being competitive. And I suppose, you know, middle of the year, it was looking like, yeah, we could uh, uh, over deliver but um, uh, we did have a very competitive car and we had for my mind the most competitive driver lineup as well so yes we did have some uh, experience there from that point of view what about the I mean the the eight rounds that season um, that, that must have been quite a, an unusual aspect as well because when you you know the start of the season wasn't so good for, for Subaru and then you know the calendar's kind of short as well because of all the rotation that was going on so so that must have added sort of extra pressure as well for, for that season well there you go you're bringing back things to my memory that I can't even <laughs> recollect you know so I'd forgotten all about that and about how short a season it actually turned out to be yes it's um, yeah you didn't get many chances do you, you get it wrong and uh, but maybe that played into our hands as well what about the the sort of the achievement in in general for for ProDrive was was ninety five Do you think ProDrive's sort of greatest achievement, or, or where does it rank in terms of of, of, of that? I'd say ninety five was our coming of age. I'd say that um, we'd worked very hard to build up the organisation to deliver. Then um, we were uh, quite a a small company when we started with Subaru and uh, by the time we got to 95 we were sort of maturing and we were starting to develop it I was beginning to so shortly after that I I certainly changed my management style to stand back from things to broaden our scope into going circuit racing to doing other engineering things so it was a it was um, an opportunity for us to just uh, take us on to the next level if you like and it was uh, it was a springboard and uh, you know I'll never forget and uh, always be grateful to the likes of Mr. Cuse who was the unsung hero of this whole story Mr. Cuse was the wonderful little uh, Japanese man who was um, in his sort of 60s when I got to know him first of all and he was the one who conceived the idea of us all going to the world championship for Subaru 
He was the one that looked after all the relationships in Japan. He was the one who was 100% supported through all the difficult times, through sort of persuading Subaru that this was the right thing to do, getting the budgets, dealing with the sort of uh, all the complications that were thrown at us. And uh, uh, he was there all the time. And if it wasn't for him, this entire Subaru story would never have happened. On the 22nd of November 1995, Colin McRae made history. Victory on the network QRAC rally confirmed the start as the first Briton ever to become world driver's champion. With a title which hung right in the balance until the eighth and final round in one of the most dramatic seasons of rallying ever. So that was 1995, through the eyes of the people that were there. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the tales, maybe some are wishing you, and maybe some that you didn't. Some I certainly didn't know, and um, it's been an absolute joy to listen to some of the stories, as I say, from the people that were there. And also listening, I suppose, to some of my colleagues and friends who shared their tales of what 1995 meant to them. Just, I suppose, as a bit of a footnote, for me, 1995 confirmed what I knew from pretty much the age of eight that I wanted to be involved with rallying and I wanted it to be in every aspect of my life moving forward and I've been fortunate enough that I can say that now. It's been an absolute joy to be part of the rally community in various ways, whether it's through business, presenting programmes or indeed competing. I hope this goes some way to maybe inspiring one or two to maybe don the overalls or or get out and, and watch some stages and uh, if you are a rally fan and you've got friends who are rally fans that perhaps don't listen to podcasts maybe just put it on for them maybe just tap into that emotion that I guess we all felt when Colin was crowned world champion in 1995 thank you for listening we were back same time same place in your little podcast hall in the not too distant future The season of 95, an absolute rally documentary produced by Sims Promotions. Spread the word and download the podcast every week. Absolute rally.co.uk.